I want to start off with just this rhetorical question. If someone came up to you and said to you, and knew you were a Christian and said, hey, I, I'm curious, what do, what do Christians do? Like, what do they do? Like, I know what a Christian is, a, I know a Christian is a person who believes that in Jesus, but, but what, do they, what do you do? Like, what are the rhythms of your life and how are they different than like a non-Christian? And you might talk about lots of different things. You might talk about being a part of a, a church family or attending a church regularly. You might talk about reading the Bible. You might talk about giving to the needy or things like Convoy of Hope. And I wonder, and I, I hope, <laughs> one of the things you might talk about is prayer. That prayer is a part of the things that we do as Christians, as we talk with God, we have conversations with God. Prayer is a huge part of the Christian life, but prayer in and of itself is not really unique to Christianity. All major religions practice some form of prayer. Muslims pray five times a day. Traditionally, Jews pray three times a day. Buddhists use prayer wheels. Hindus pray to various gods for help and peace. Even many, non, or many Native American religions or religious practices involve prayer through song and dance. And not even, uh, prayer isn't even unique among religious people. Even non-religious people pray at times during difficult seasons or difficult circumstances. I heard a study that said that 30% of self-identifying atheists admitted to praying sometimes who they think they're praying to, I don't know, but, <laughs> but they admitted that. Even in the most remote, isolated people groups and cultures, we find that there is not even one that doesn't have some form of prayer as part of their culture. There seems to be something in us as human beings, innate in us, that the idea of prayer just seems to be ingrained in who we are. But of course, that doesn't mean all prayer is the same. Not all prayer is the same, right? From the chanting of monks to Muslims kneeling on rugs facing the east to an Anglican reading from the Book of Common Prayer or a Hindu making an offering before a shrine in their home. Prayer is such a subjective, multifaceted concept that it's no wonder why it can be difficult to understand how to practice it or what, what does it look like? It looks different to different people. And so it's no wonder why Jesus found it really important to teach his followers, the disciples, how to pray and why they were so eager to learn from him. We're currently about halfway through a series we've called Redefine. We're taking a look at a chunk of scripture in the Gospel of Matthew uh, known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon. And Last weekend, Heather shared on a, a kind of a newer section, a new section, in starting off in chapter six, where Jesus really challenges the disciples on why the things they why they do the things they do. What are what are their motives behind what you do? Among Jews, it was expected to give and pray and fast. Those were normal practices of their faith. But as we looked at last weekend, Jesus is doing some redefining of those things and wants us to ask why. Why do we do those things? What are our motives behind them? Heather uh, said something last week that really stuck with me. It was this. It was this. There is a very true reality 
that we can go through life doing really good things with really wrong motives. That God cares about the inside and the attitude of our hearts even more than the outside. That we can do really good things like giving and praying and fasting, but if we do them with the wrong heart and the wrong motives, then we've missed the point. Heather looked last weekend at the first example of giving, and today we're going to look at Jesus' second example of prayer, of how to pray and how not to pray. So if you have a Bible or phone, you want to go to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start off in verse 5. If not, you're welcome to grab a Bible in the back, or it'll also be on the screens. But Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, it says this. And when you pray, again, assuming, Jesus is assuming that his followers are praying, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Here we see Jesus describes an example of how not to pray and then how to pray. And in our culture today, prayer has become a relatively private thing. You know, but in the first century, Israel, prayer, and still today in Israel, uh, prayer is often a very public display. If you want to go ahead and throw that picture up there, here's a group of of Jewish men at, at the Wailing Wall in public praying. And we would, I'm sure, look at that and say, yeah, I don't see that every day you know, in the Sunbury Square. You know, that, that's a really rare, kind of uncommon thing for us to see in our culture. So, so we can easily pass over this chunk of scripture and say, well, that doesn't apply to us. N-A, not applicable, right, in the margins. We can write that, but, but we need to remember it's not the act of public prayer that Jesus is critiquing here. There's absolutely nothing wrong with praying in public. What Jesus is questioning is one's motives for praying in public. What is your motives? What would, what, would, what would your motives be if you were to pray in public? Would it to bring glory to God or to get glory from others, for others to see what you do and to glorify ourselves? That's what Jesus is getting at. He's inviting us to look at our hearts and examine our motives. How much of our time is really spent in prayer when no one else knows? You know, with with prayer being more of a private thing in our culture, there's there's not as much accountability. So how much time of our lives do we really spend time in prayer, an intimate conversation with God, or do we find it hard to find time to pray? I think most people do. Unless we're desperately in need for something, we'll be quick to turn to God. But, but in everyday things, we, it's easy to, to neglect um, a conversation with God. Do we say, to things, say things to other people like, how's da-da-da-da-da going? I've been praying for you. But really, we actually haven't been. We've like forgotten until we've seen them face to face. But we don't want to appear as if we've forgotten that. We don't want to appear as if we're not regularly praying for them. 
This passage, it invites us to ask the question, what is the reward I'm hoping to gain from praying? Is the reward the praise of others or the praise of myself like a pat on the back or is it the praise of God that motivates me to pray? Do I do it out of spiritual ritual or out of spiritual relationship with God? That's what Jesus is asking us to take an honest look at. But then, then Jesus makes a little bit of a shift in his sermon. He makes a little bit of a shift. It's like he's in the process of giving these three examples about giving and praying and fasting. And it's as if he sees this invaluable, teachable moment. I wonder if, if he's on a roll preaching and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit drops this thought into his mind like, hey, right now would be a really great time to give an example of what really good prayer looks like. Because it's like he pauses in his train of three things that he's talking about and takes this time to give us the next chunk of scripture, what is now known, probably for sure, the most famous prayer in the Christian faith, the Lord's Prayer. We're gonna pick up here, verse nine. This then is how you should pray, Jesus says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This prayer, again, most, the most known of all prayers in Christian faith, it's the prayer of prayers. And for almost 2,000 years, it's been called the Lord's Prayer, but it probably should actually be called the Disciples' Prayer. And we're not gonna, it's, we're not gonna be able to make a campaign to get the name changed. But, but it, it's really a prayer for the disciples. It's really a prayer to teach them, hey, this is how you can connect to God. And, and if, especially since in the part of the prayer, Jesus says, hey, and teach us how to forgive us of our debts. Well, Jesus didn't have any debts to forgive. He was perfect and blameless and sinless, but, but he knew that his followers were. He knew that we were. So our Lord Jesus is teaching really us as disciples how we can pray. The challenge with this prayer is that for many of us, for many of us, it's a little too familiar. It's a little too well known. If you grew up in a church, you may have gone to a different church or a more traditional church where this prayer was said every Sunday every center. You may, maybe in your family, in your home, this was a prayer you guys said you recited regularly. And so, and so I know for me, uh, I grew up in a very traditional church where about two-thirds of the way through every Sunday service, we would grab the hand of the person to the right and to the left of us, and we would recite this prayer together. And there were definitely times, if I'm honest, where I just would think, I wish we could just say this prayer as fast as possible and, and get this over with, you know? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the name of the kingdom come, the world done as with us, and gives us the bread for gifts, our trespass, leave us not temptation. And done, 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 let's go home. Brown's about ready to start, right? That's what I would think. I was like, we're almost done. Let's wrap this up. And yet, and yet, it, this prayer is so filled with such richness and beauty and meaning. And for me, I have had to really repent of that and say, I need to go back. I need to... I need to see how, how great this prayer is. I need to be refreshed by this prayer. There's so much good stuff in it. It's like, it's like going to someone's house 
and visiting them maybe for dinner and all of a sudden a train goes by and you fall out of your seat because it's loud and the horn's going and the pictures are shaking on the wall and everybody who lives in that house is like, doesn't seem to notice at all. And like, oh yeah, we don't even notice the train anymore. We sleep right through it. Sometimes the things that we are so familiar with and so comfortable with, we forget that they're, how valuable they are. We, we neglect them. We don't even notice them any, anymore. And don't get me wrong. Don't hear me wrong. The Lord's Prayer, there's nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing po- wrong with having the Lord's Prayer be a part of our regular routine. It's not pointless. It's not bad. But I would say that Jesus himself warns us in verse 7 to make sure that we're not babbling it. Like the pagans. I love how the The New American Standard Bible translates that verse seven. It says this, and when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as Gentiles do. Let's not let this prayer, this beautiful prayer, become meaningless repetition, right? Now, many theologians have written whole books about these five verses, volumes of books, uh, studied this for many, many years. There's no way in the next couple minutes we can do it justice. But I want to take the time that we have remained to really kind of go kind of chunk by chunk and, and just glean some really great truths from, these, uh, from this uh, prayer. So it's, Jesus starts off with our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. We read that and think, oh, yeah, that sounds about right. Father in heaven, nothing. But this was radical to his first audience. For him to call God our Father. It's interesting that Uh, God is referred to as Father only a few times in the whole Old Testament, 39 books. Only a couple times. And every time that occurs, Father is used in a less than personal way. Usually it's used in a way of saying God is like the Father of the nation of Israel. And yet Jesus, Jesus uses it in a very different way. Jesus refers to God like he's his actual intimate Father. In just the four books of the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as a father over 60 times. And prior to Jesus, no one in the Jewish tradition, no one in any religious tradition that we know of ever thought of God as their father. This was brand new in the world of religions. As a personal, relational, accessible dad. The Greek word here for father is the word pater or patros. That's where we get the root word paternal from. But the German uh, New Testament scholar, Jeremiah, he argues that the original word Jesus probably used here was the Aramaic word Abba, Abba. And that would have been the same word that Jesus as a young boy would have used to call his earthly father, Joseph, Abba. It means like something like daddy, dada, papa, but in a slightly more reverent way. Scholar Kent Hughes says that the best translation in our modern-day English word would, would be to say, our dearest father, our dearest father. To the everyday Jew in Jesus' time period, this was not only new, it was controversial. They wouldn't have dared to think to call God such a personal name. Dearest father implies intimacy and accessibility, and I can come as I am before you, that I can approach God, my Father, and expect to get his undivided attention, that he's not some 
uh, so busy in the cosmos that he can't give me his full access and full attention. Uh, During the Civil War, there was a, a Union soldier who got some terrible news. He got some news that his father and his brother had passed away, and he was the only living male in his family left. And, and he was so worried about his mother at home and his sister at home that, that he, he decided he was gonna do something a little bit risky. He was gonna see if he could get leave from his service to go home and take care of them and take care of the family farm, worried about how they were doing. And so he went to D.C., and he walked up to the White House front door. I guess you could do that back then. I don't think you can get that close anymore. But he walked up to the front door hoping to get access or a message to President Lincoln. And of course, the guard stopped him. And even though he kind of said what he was there for, wouldn't let, the guard wouldn't let him in. He denied him. He said, no way. Who are you? Who are you to come in and ask that? So the man left. He went distraught. He sat down on a nearby park bench and this little boy came over to him and saw that he was upset. And he said, what's wrong? And the, and the man told the boy his story. He told him what had happened. And the boy responded by grabbing the man's hand and saying, come with me. Come with me. And he led the man around to the back of the White House, through the back door, past the guards, they didn't say anything, past all government officials, they didn't say anything, opens a door, he walks in, and, the, and here, here stands President Lincoln himself with his generals talking over battle plans. And you'd think Lincoln would be like, what's going on? You know, what are you doing? Get out of here. But no, Lincoln looks up and says, oh, hi, son. How can I help you? And, and the little boy says, dad, this man has something he needs to tell you. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the access that a son has with a father? That that little Tad could, the boy's name was Tad, little Tad could come come and interrupt critical, you know, very important work that was happening and his dad would pause what he was doing, you know, the leader of the free world and give his attention to his boy. And what a beautiful picture it is that the son Jesus says, you can have full access to the Father God in heaven through me. That you can come to him through me and have his full attention. That's what it means to say, dearest father. That's what Jesus gives us as Christians. After addressing God as Father, Jesus goes on to list six different petitions, six different requests. And the first three, as we will see, are focused more upward. They have to do more with God and his glory. Your name, God. Your kingdom, God. Your will, God. And the last three, the last three petitions focus more on us, on our well-being. Give us. Forgive us. Lead us. What Jesus is doing here is he's showing us how we can prioritize our prayer life in a really healthy way of putting God first and us second. So it's a beautiful pattern that we can model our prayers after. But the first petition he starts off with this is, hallowed be your name. 
Hallowed be your name. To a Jew, names were more than just names. They weren't, they weren't just nice sounding labels. They actually defined a part of the person's character. And so throughout the Old Testament, God has given all different kinds of names to reveal different aspects of his character. For example, Gideon in the Old Testament calls God Jehovah Shalom, the Lord of peace. Abraham calls God Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. And in this case, Jesus invites us to call God our dearest father. But, but what about this word hallow? We don't, we don't use the word hallow very often in our common everyday language unless it's October and we're going to add ween on the end of it. But, but what does it mean? It means, it means to be set apart, considered or treated as holy. It means holy. So herein lies the beauty of our God. On one hand, on one hand, we can, he's our dearest father. We, we, we can have an intimate, accessible relationship with him and know him and come as we are. But on the other hand, he's holy and we are not. He's perfect and we are not. So on one hand, there's this zero gap between us. And on the other hand, there's the potential of an infinite gap between us and God. But it's because and only because of the sacrifice of Jesus that we can draw near to God's hallowedness and come near and into his presence. And this is important for us to remember that, yes, well, well we, hold, we need to hold these two things in tension, that we can come to God as we are and we can, we can treat him as our father, but at the same time, we need to not forget to be in awe of him, of respect of him, in praise of him. Like a, like a little boy who, who, who looks up to their father and glorifies their father and honors their father. How do we do that? How do we elevate his name to be holy? Well, we do that in a couple ways. We do that by worshiping him like we just did a few minutes ago. And we do it by worshiping him in private. We do it by, by telling him in words, words of praise, words of adoration. And we do it by the, the way we live our lives, the choices that we make. When we, when we make choices that, hold, that are holy, that are holy acts, we bring glory to God's name by doing that. We talked about last weekend, when you give generously in secret and, and, and don't let anybody know and don't brag about it, that, that brings glory to God's name. A couple weeks ago, we talked about loving our enemies. Let's, let's say you're angry because you're, <laughs> cleaning up your neighbor's dog's poop in your yard. And you wanna, all you want to do is fling it over to their side, right? But you resist. That, that simple act brings glory to God's name, loving and serving our neighbors. When, when, we, do, when we do an act in ways that are holy, as our fathers, sons, and daughters, we bring credibility to the family name. We, 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 it's a witness and testimony to the people around us. And, and, and I think the angels in heaven sing God's praises when we do that. Your kingdom come is the next petition. Your kingdom come. In the vineyard, the main theology that we ascribe to is typically known as kingdom theology. Kingdom theology. John Wimber, the founder of the vineyard movement, uh, when he was teaching students at Fuller Seminary, on the first day of class, he would often have all the, all the students say, 
he would ask them this question, give me one word that would sum up the whole Bible. Give me one word, you sum it all. And they'd, they'd start shouting out answers like grace and forgiveness and salvation and testament. And he'd write them all on the board. He'd write them on the board and eventually they'd run out of things to say. They couldn't think of anything. And he'd say, those are all great words, but you're missing the key one. It's the word kingdom. Kingdom is the key word. When God created the world in the Garden of Eden, he created a kingdom. Later, when, when, when he takes, God takes Abraham and his descendants and he forms the kingdom of Israel to be a light to all the other nations. When Jesus comes on the scene, do you know what his favorite topic to talk about was? It was the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He would say things like, and tell stories, the kingdom is like da 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 Or he would say, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus mentioned the kingdom 103 times in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It must be really, really important if he says it over 100 times. And at the end of all ends, when Jesus returns, the kingdom of God will be fully realized here on earth as it is in heaven. And our ultimate vision for a better world shouldn't be limited to a slightly higher economy or even a winning season for the Cleveland Browns. I'm a big Browns fan. I pray that prayer often. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> our ultimate vision for a better world should be the kingdom of God to come more and more and more. God, may your kingdom come. Because when God's kingdom comes and when it breaks in, that's when things happen. That's when things get fixed. That's when broken things get made new. That's when the sick are healed. That's when the lost are saved. That's when the lonely are loved. That's when the outcast is included. That's when the guilty are forgiven and the shamed are lifted up in honor and the oppressed are set free. The kingdom of God, come, come. Thankfully, the kingdom of heaven is not man's idea, it's God's idea. And that's why it's the only utopian society that will ever work, that will ever actually happen and come true. So we say, let your kingdom come now, Lord. We want to see more of it now. But how does that happen? How does God's kingdom come? Well, it happens when his will is done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this mean? It, it means that what God wants done gets done. That God's reign and rule happens and the kingdom of God becomes a little bit more visible on our earth like it already is fully in heaven. This part of the prayer it has huge implications globally, but it also has huge implications very personally and internally. It means that we are, when we say this part of the prayer, when we say this petition, that we are preaching to ourselves, to be obedient to God's will, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. In this third petition, we are, we are inviting God to conquer our sinful, stubborn part inside of us, those selfish ways that say, I want to do things my way, God, and we choose to say, help me to choose to say, I want to choose your way. And this can be hard. This can be difficult. And it's hard and difficult sometimes because it sometimes costs us something. No one knew this better than Jesus himself. Just before being betrayed, arrested, 
beaten, crucified, killed Jesus, late at night, so upset, went into the Garden of Gethsemane to talk to his dearest father about what was going to happen. And he said this, Matthew 26, he says this, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. Almost, almost the same exact words, your will be done, your will be done. I recently was listening to a podcast of, of two guys. Uh, one was Adam Russell. He came and did our conference in the spring. I don't know if you remember him. Uh, and another vineyard pastor named Jared Boyd, who's a pastor in Columbus. And they were talking about this idea, this concept, that um, sometimes you walk with Jesus long enough, you're going to feel like you're in the Garden of Gethsemane that you're going to have to walk in his footsteps on some level, that you're going to be faced with difficult decisions, difficult seasons in life, difficult things you're worried about and struggling with. And, and the question you're going to have to ask God is, God, is it your will or my will? What, am I, what do I want to do here? We're going to have to make that choice. But I will say this, from my own personal experience, even though this prayer of saying your will be done can be really, really hard, it's also the most blessed thing that you can ever pray. Because God has never led anyone down a path that was not worth the journey. God has never led anyone down a path that wasn't worth the journey. It may be difficult. It may be really hard. It may cost you something, but it will be worth it if it's God's will. Thank goodness, thank goodness, Jesus, knowing this, knowing this, knowing he was going to have to pay the ultimate price and die on the cross, still said yes, still said your will, God. Knowing that being obedient to the will of the Father was going to affect and get, allow us to have the salvation and be saved and to come and rescue the whole world. Jesus knows the same is true for you and me as well. But that is why the next petition is so essential. So essential. Give us today our daily bread. We, we can't do the will of God if you don't give us what we need to do it, Lord. Can't do it. I can't do it on my own. And this means our physical needs, like our, our actual bread, food, but it also means our spiritual needs, our emotional needs. We can't do it without you, God, and this is where the prayer shifts from praying uh, to God be lifted up and glorified to, to asking God and praying for ourselves and petitioning him for our own needs and our own well-being. Give us today our daily bread. And I wonder, I wonder if his original disciples and audience when hearing this would have thought back to their own people's history, remembering stories of, of their ancestors traveling in the wilderness for 40 years without food, and God provided daily bread from heaven every day, manna from heaven. And they would go and store it up and try to collect it and keep some of it for the next day, but every day, they would go look up for that stored up manna, and it would be spoiled. And they'd have to learn to be dependent on God for fresh bread every day. That we are never meant to become independent or try to do it without him. This phrase also means that Jesus wants us to boldly ask the Father for what we need. Big things and small things are important to God. Nothing is too trivial for him. 
What kind of father doesn't want to take care of his kids' needs? What kind of father doesn't want to do that? I know sometimes it's hard for me to pray and ask God for things. Like if I'm asking him to heal my kid of their cold, when I know that other parents are asking him to heal them, their kids of cancer. But yet God, he wants us to bring both before him. He wants us to boldly come and and bring both things because God cares about colds and cancer. He cares about all of our needs, big or small. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. This part of the prayer uh, is what St. Augustine called the terrible petition. (laughs) The terrible petition. He said, because it can either bring us blessing or bring us cursing. And what does he mean by that? What did he mean by that? Well, it implies and assumes that we are regularly forgiving others. And if we aren't, then will God forgive us? We can't ask God for forgiveness if we are unwilling to extend forgiveness to others. John Wesley, he was a famous 18th century evangelist. And one time he was coming across from Great Britain to the colonies in America. He was on the ship and he heard this, this big argument break out through the walls of the cabin next door. And so he went out to kind of see what was going on. Everything was okay, see if he could help. And here he sees the founder of the colony of Georgia screaming at one of his servants, just irate because he had caught his servant drinking the last of his favorite wine. Don't touch the man's Cabernet, apparently. (laughs) Screaming at him and and telling him he's going to have him beaten on deck and as soon as they get to the colonies, he's gonna force him to enlist in the military. Screaming at him. And Wesley just, he he comes before the, the... the founder of, of Georgia, and he says to him, would you just, won't you pardon him? Won't you forgive him? Won't you let this one go? And the man turns to Mr. Wesley and he says, Mr. Wesley, don't you know, I never forgive. And John Wesley, I don't know, he must have been, I think he was filled with the Holy Spirit, pulled up his preaching big boy britches, and looked him straight in the eye and said, well, then I hope you've never sinned because you will never be forgiven. And those seem like really harsh words, but they weren't actually Wesley's words. They were the words of Jesus. Look what it says in verse 14 and 15. It says this, for if you forgive other people when, you sin, when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. If we refuse to forgive others, then we aren't living as Christians. And that seems harsh, I know, and extreme, but, but a Christian is someone who knows they've been forgiven by God of their sins, past, present, and future. And, and as a, a sign of that, in what's happened inward, they extend forgiveness to others outward. That, 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 that's, part, that's an outward pouring of that of what we know to be true inside. And forgiveness isn't wishful thinking and it isn't a psychological trick that we tell ourselves. It's a beautiful miracle of God. And I wish we had more time to talk about it, but we've, we've talked about it a little bit already in the, this series. 
So if, you, if that's something that's like kind of, oh, it digs in your heart a little bit, I would encourage you to go back and listen to some of the series if you've missed any, or re- refresh on some that we've done in the past, even if you were here uh, on the online, on the podcast, or grab some of the CDs out in the back. Because like, we've talked about how we can make really great spiritual exchanges with God in giving and receiving forgiveness, really, really great ways. But their final petition is this says this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There's an old Jewish prayer that was often recited in the evenings that Jesus may have known that went like this. It says this, lead me not into the power of transgression and bring me not into the power of sin and not into the power of iniquity, and not into the power of temptation, and not into the power of anything shameful. The idea of this final petition is to ask God to protect us from succumbing to the power of these things. It's a request uh, not saying that we would never be tempted. Jesus knew that we would be tempted. Jesus himself was tempted. Part of living in a broken world Uh, this is going to be a part of our lives. But what it says instead is to not be led or brought into temptation. There's a difference. There's a difference. To be led or brought into temptation means to entertain the idea of sin, to dabble in sin, to put our toes a little bit over the line a little bit. And so by saying, do not lead us into temptation, we're essentially saying, God, lead us out of temptation. When we find ourselves in temptation or in spaces of temptation, show us the way out. Show us the path out. Show us where the light is to lead us out of the darkness. And then it says, and deliver us from the evil one. Some other translations just say evil, but but it's often also translated the evil one. Talking about Satan, that we have an enemy, that we do. We don't think about that often. We don't like to think about that often. There's an unseen spiritual war going on all around us all the time between good and evil, God and Satan, and that we are uh, the spoils of that war. That it's it's our souls that are being fought over, and that should not be lost on us. That we need to pray regularly to say, God, protect me. Protect my family. Deliver me from, from, from evil. Lead me out of darkness. I want to end with this. I want to end with this. Christian prayer is a beautiful gift from God that is distinctly different from all other forms of prayer of all other religions because we are invited by Jesus to go to our dearest Father, to know Him and have access to Him in in an intimate relationship with Him as His sons and daughters. And, And in the Lord's Prayer, it particularly gives us such a beautiful pattern of how we can pray, of how we can pray. The great Martin Luther used to suggest to his parishioners that they practice the art of paraphrasing this prayer every day. Every day to to say the Lord's Prayer, but then to paraphrase it in, in your own, what has happened in your own life that day. To do something like this, to say, our dearest Father, remind me today that you are my loving and accessible Father. And Father, how have I seen your name be made holy today? How can I lift up your name in holiness? How can I thank you and praise you? 
where have I seen your kingdom come today? Where have I seen your will be done today? How did I partner in that well? How did I fail in that? Lord, give, it, give me the things I need today, my daily bread. You know the things I need. I need this, I need this. I'm, there's things I don't even, I'm not even aware I need that you do, Lord. We lift those things up to him. Pray for those things. God, show me, show me um, where I need to ask your forgiveness for today. And don't let me forget to be aware of where I need to forgive others today. And, and, and protect me from the evil one. Deliver me from that. Like, lead me out of temptation. Lead, show me the way out in the ways I, I struggle with sin. I struggle with temptation. Show me the way out today. And I promise you, if you start to pray those kinds of things, then you're going to fall more and more in love with prayer. That, that prayer will be like breathing. It'll be like life-giving. It'll be something that you long to do regularly that you're, you can't wait to get home to do. You can't wait to get in your car to do. You can't wait to go into those secret places in your room and spend time with God because, because he'll fill you up he'll, in your year. He'll give you the, all those things that you need. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand up? Why don't we stand up here? We're gonna, before we end off and, and dismiss we always like at the end to take a few minutes to just kind of respond to what God is doing, to respond what he's doing and, and, um, and just give him some space. So I, I would invite you to close your eyes um, so we're not distracted. And let's just, let's just kind of wait on God for a little bit. We just say, dearest Father, let your kingdom come right now. We say, come Holy Spirit. God, I just thank you for what you're doing in our lives today, how you're just revealing yourself to us. We just say more of you, Lord. We ask for more of you. Let's just keep our eyes closed for a minute. I just, I'm just wondering if there aren't some of you here today, you might say, you know, I don't really have a relationship with God like that. Thinking of him as my dearest father. Maybe you've never thought of God like that. Maybe you've never started a relationship with him like that. And I just want to give you an opportunity to do that today. I'm just going to pray a really quick, short prayer. And if that's you, I just would invite you to pray along kind of in your mind with me. So just, dearest Father, I want to know you like that, like Jesus knew you as the Son. Would you forgive me of my sins, like it says in the Lord's Prayer. I want to start a, a personal, accessible relationship with you like that. I want to know you like that. Amen. Amen. You can all look up. If you prayed that prayer, I would love uh, to invite you to come forward here in a little bit to get prayer from somebody else just to bless you. It's like a really big deal. And, uh, and I'd love it if you feel comfortable to come and let me know that after the service. Actually, we have a gift for you. That, that's a big deal. So we'd love to give you a, a special gift if, if you've never done that before and never really given your life to God like that before. But I think for the rest of us, I think there's some stuff that God wants to work on today or do some work in today. And, uh, and the first thing that comes to mind is that as I was preparing this, I, re I realized that for some of you, you feel like you're in the garden right now, like we talked about. You're facing really difficult challenges, really difficult decisions. 
And you know that, you know, saying, God, your will be done is, a, is gonna be hard. And, and, and so you need the strength to do it. You need the strength and the wisdom to do it. So I would invite you, if that's you, or if you see like a decision like that coming on the horizon, I would encourage you to come forward and have somebody just bless that in you and, and pray for you in that way. Um, I know for some of you that like this prayer of asking for daily bread is very real. Financially, you're, you're in a tight spot right now. You're wondering where money's gonna come, um, wondering where a job's gonna come. You're, you're struggling in that way. And we just wanna pray for you in that too, that God would meet your, your, your daily needs in that way. But I know for a lot of us, I know this is just true after talking to a lot of people that praying seems like it should be something that's so easy, but yet it's so hard to do regularly and consistently. And that for, for myself too, I go through seasons of life where I, I struggle with prayer. And, and I just think that God wants us to, to invite us to kind of uh, repent of that, that, that maybe we don't always put the most effort into it, but, but most importantly, to meet us in that to show up and reveal himself in, in prayer, that it would become that air we breathe and so valuable, so life-giving. So if you feel like you're kind of in that state where prayer is just kind of blah, I would encourage you to come forward and have somebody bless you. Emma's gonna lead us in one last worship song that is you know, right on point with what we've been talking about today. But if any of that applies, come forward, get prayer. Don't leave today without missing out on that opportunity. Guys, pray for guys and girls, pray for girls. And, um, and yeah, then I'll come up and close this in a second.